tech companies need to acknowledge and really take seriously how online abuse in different forms affects the person at the receiving end. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm the research manager at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector to tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast. This week, we're discussing the issue of online misogyny. Misogyny is defined as a dislike of, contempt for, or ingrained prejudice against women. And unfortunately, women are often disproportionately targeted by hate speech and abuse, especially in online spaces. Amnesty International says online abuse of women is widespread, with one in five women in the UK having suffered online abuse or harassment. And the rise of online feminist activism has made women even greater targets. With the help of our expert guests, we'll consider why misogynistic views are so prominent online, what impact online harms have on our offline lives, and what tech platforms can do to counter violent misogynistic content. I'm joined by Elsa Bengtsson-Muller, a PhD candidate at Goldsmiths, University of London, where they're researching the politics of anti-feminist and misogynistic online cultures. And Dr. Jessica Ashu, who's the Senior Director of Policy at the online discussion website Reddit. Firstly, what are anti-feminist online cultures? Let's hear from Elsa. Anti-feminist online cultures can be understood in at least twofold ways. So we have anti-feminist culture overall, which would be things you don't see. So behaviours, customs and ideology of hierarchical understandings of gender, where usually men would be on top and women would be seen as inferior to men. And other genders wouldn't be acknowledged within an anti-feminist uh, ideological viewpoint, so in anti-feminist culture. So uh, non-binary and trans identities wouldn't be seen as something legitimate. Anti-feminist cultures could also be understood as communities and groups that do possess and, and use or say like adhere to these ideology. So anti-feminist cultures include uh, incels, misogynist incels, pickup artists, um, men going their own way, those communities. You can also broadly categorize other groups within anti-feminist cultures who also believe in like natural hierarchy among genders and sexes. And uh, so this include far-right groups, um, Islamist extremist groups, and so on. Part of Elsa's research on the politics of anti-feminist and online cultures aims to understand the effects online harms have on our offline lives. They're particularly focusing on the emotional impact on victims of gender-based abuse, including by misogynist incels. Incels are online communities of men who believe that women owe them sex and if they don't oblige, some incels turn to violence. I asked Elsa to explain what the main beliefs driving this misogyny are. It's patriarchal culture, mainly, as well as uh, other structures of power that we can see and people can experience. So white supremacism comes in there as well. Basically, what makes these communities uh, exist is because it's allowed. So we have a lot of misogyny in society, we had a lot of white supremacism and racism. So the beliefs and thoughts and practices they engage in online is basically considered okay in a way. So this is mainly what drives misogyny and hate online as well, because they do not meet as much resistance online as they maybe would have done offline, but not even offline. 
So why is misogyny so prevalent in extremist networks online, not just among incels, but across ideologies? Elsa says it's a reflection of wider society. Misogyny is relatively accepted. We have this misogynistic culture, I guess. We, it's very subtle in ways, and sometimes it's just very brute and, and visible and unaccepted. We have more illegitimate practices of misogyny like in your face, forceful, such as femicide, for example. But then we also have more acceptable versions of misogyny, such as that women are not believed um, as much as men would be in certain circumstances. So we can see it in, in domestic abuse trials, for example. And we can also see it in just in our classrooms, for example, that boys could express their views without uh, obstacles, as many obstacles as girls would, perhaps. Elsa has studied online gender-based abuse by conducting interviews with researchers. They spoke to people who've been directly affected by this kind of abuse and measured the effects by asking how it made them feel and what impact it had on their lives. Elsa explains that online gender-based abuse is broader than just online messages and can have a huge impact on victims. This is an area of research that is just starting to come out and kind of developing. So the extent of it, we don't really know for sure. But if we consider what might be included in online gender-based abuse uh, in that term, which is a very big term, we probably have a lot of people who have experienced it that might not recognize it or thinking about it. So online gender-based abuse could be that someone abuses you online or harasses you online based on your gender identity. It could be a comment that someone is writing on social media about you uh, and it can extend to you being in a relationship with someone who is controlling um, your social media, but also using technology to control you and harass you. That are that like invisible but visible threat can be that someone is calling you uh, all the time. In some cases, it's been that someone is controlling the thermostat from somewhere else, uh, to basically gaslight you to believe that what you're experiencing is not real. So the main way that online gender-based abuse is felt is through mental emotional impacts, which then also affect your physical well-being, right? So the weaponization of technology is through emotional means. So if you are connected online, if you have are on social media, use technology, which you kind of have to do if you want to, you know, be involved in society today. There's always the risk that someone might uh, harass you, abuse you online. So, so the threat is always a bit behind you or over over you. So you can't really escape it by just going to another place, for example. I have done interviews with people who uh, are either researchers of um, different kind of online gender-based abuse or extremism that are looking to hate and so on, but also people who have been affected directly by online abuse, um, what they are the target of the abuse, basically. So the way I am measuring or looking into the effects is then to ask how they feel and how they are feeling now and and seeing what precautions they are making now, for example, and what effects it has it had on their lives. So a lot of them have, for example, started to self-censor more. So they are not on social media or use technology in the same way. Some 
would have also installed in like a real life protection. So they have, you know, um, security cameras outside the doors and so on, have different procedures uh, at work, for example, to make sure that they are safe from being abused offline. And Elsa says the research has impacted their own mental health too. So part of how I am researching was to acknowledge the emotions for myself to um, just to see how it is, which was, was good and bad because it also made me open up to actually feeling the things, which sometimes I think can be protection that we make for ourselves when we are looking into very bad and awful things. So when I was doing my research, I actively or I wrote reflections on what am I feeling when I'm reading things, which was good in a way as well, because when I looked it through afterwards, I could see that I was continuously using the same words to express what I was feeling like this is awful didn't really say much actually what it was more than it was like overwhelming but I think because of that and coming across some very awful material it also allowed me to stop uh, for a while so I had a break for a couple of months to recalibre I guess uh, to just think it through also realise come back to like actually seeing what how bad it was as well because I think we can get used to some material and think like this is just how it is whilst it actually is something that's not a common thing and should not be accepted it has affected me a lot when it comes to uh, my mental health physical health as well that I think a lot of research or like talks are coming out now about uh, researchers mental health and physical health uh, due to vicarious trauma uh, for example so yeah um, I guess that's how it is but I mean I'm fine (laughs) but still it's good to acknowledge that these things also affect people who are seeing it uh, not just directly experiences because we can see all this in not just incel specific forums but we've seen them constantly especially on twitter like recently a lot more so yeah depending on your identity and what you have gone through in the past you will see material and see people engaging in hate and abuse uh, and still be affected by it uh, even though you're not actively an actor or part of what is going on So what can be done to counter misogynistic narratives and abuse online? One platform which has worked hard to tackle the issue of violent misogynists is Reddit. Let's bring in Dr. Jessica Ashu. A quick reminder, she's the Senior Director of Policy at Reddit. Jessica says incels first came to Reddit's attention back in 2017, when the platform was reviewing its policies against violent content. When I first started at Reddit in mid-2017, the safety team was focused on reducing and removing violent content of all kinds from the platform. And there was a real effort to step up not only our enforcement of existing policies, but also ensuring that those policies were fit to capture the things that we were seeing on the platform. And so in order to do that, you have to do a process of assessment of what is actually on the site. And doing that led us to look at incels, among other things, more closely. And that was important because it's necessary to look at incel communities very closely just to, you know, figure out what's actually going on, since they have such a bizarre lexicon and use lots of coded in-group language. And so in that process, I'll say it's also critically important to separate violent incel communities from communities where people are maybe just frustrated in matters of love and maybe feeling bad about themselves and seeking support in a community. 
because that kind of peer support seeking is actually essential to protect as an important resource. And it's one of the things that Reddit is really proud to be able to facilitate. And we actually do have a lot of positive spaces for men to seek peer support from each other. And so once we got to the bottom of analyzing the various communities, we were able to determine which ones were violent or at least idealized violence and were therefore against our policies. Reddit's work to remove incels and violent misogynists from the platform was part of a wider commitment to take down content which encourages or glorifies violence. Jessica explains that Reddit considers a number of factors beyond simply whether a piece of content violates the policy. Yeah, so in getting into this question, I think it's important to go over at a high level how Reddit works, because we are quite different from other online platforms in that we follow a model of community moderation that you can think of as somewhat federal in style. So Reddit as a platform is divided into thousands upon thousands of individual communities that we call subreddits. And Each of those communities is governed by specific rules that are particular to the topic of what the community is about. So, for example, if you have a community about cats, you can have a rule that says no dogs. And that's perfectly fine. It's not because dogs are unsafe or hateful in any way or anything like that. It's just not what that community wants to talk about. And we support and encourage our communities to have those particular rules so that they can curate the conversation that they want to have and build the community that's useful for them. And all of those rules are written and enforced by volunteer community moderators who are not Reddit employees. They're just online citizens who want to play their part in curating a really great space about whatever they want to talk about. Now, backstopping this kind of community moderation system is our site-wide content policy that we set as a company um, and which applies to every community across the platform. And so it's that site-wide content policy that I was discussing earlier in terms of how we were thinking about tweaking it to capture more violent content on the website. So all of our Reddit communities, no matter what they're about, are obligated to uphold our site-wide policies. And we also expect all of our users and our moderators to uphold those rules. The moderators would uphold those rules, of course, through um, removing content from their communities that's in violation um, and in not creating communities that are in violation of our content policy. But the users also have a role to play because Reddit is very democratic. Every piece of content on Reddit can be voted on by every individual user. You can vote it up or you can vote it down. Content that is voted up rises in prominence, whereas content that is voted down sufficiently um, lowers in prominence to the point where it can collapse from the feed entirely. And so in that way, every individual Reddit user can become a content moderator at scale. And so kind of because of that community dynamic, how we think about setting and enforcing policies is just a little bit more sophisticated because we think a lot about community health rather than simply looking at individual pieces of content and saying, is this against the rule? Is this in compliance with the rule? We have a much richer tapestry of things to evaluate. And so um, the context of a piece of content on Reddit becomes very, very important. 
something can be perfectly acceptable in one context, whereas it can be construed as hateful or misogynist in another context, depending on the type of community that it appears in. And so when we're developing our policies, one of the things that we're considering is not only is any given piece of content going to be compliant or non-compliant with the rules, but is this a rule that is enforceable and understandable and comprehensible by the Reddit community, by the volunteer moderators who are going to have to um, patrol their communities and enforce these rules across the site? So how does the team at Reddit decide which communities should be allowed to stay on the platform and which communities should be removed? Jessica says context is key. There are a lot of things to consider when we're thinking about evaluating communities against our rules. Now, the simplest situation is the community is just dedicated to something that is blatantly against the Reddit rules. And in that case, we ban the community and we're very transparent when we do that. Um, we have um, a very comprehensive transparency report that you can look up and it notes you know, every community that we've banned in a given year and what rules the communities were, were banned under. So you can see kind of our total actions there. There are a lot of situations where it's not necessarily that clear cut, and there is a lot of context that we need to take into account, particularly when you're dealing with volunteer moderators. There can be quite a lot of legitimate reasons why moderation may slip and be inadequate at certain times. For example, you know, a moderator may just have gotten busy with their work or their life, and they haven't had time to sign in and moderate. And in those cases, we work through what's called our moderator reserve program to try and recruit experienced moderators to help share the the burden um, of the initial moderators. You also see situations where a community has gotten a lot of attention. It can be positive attention, right? There can be news stories that highlight how wonderful a particular community is. And then suddenly, because of that media attention, a lot of people start going to that community, whereas it was previously smaller. And that's another situation where we may have to recruit additional moderators or talk with the moderators about the different types of automated tools that we make available for them so that they can handle that um, sudden unexpected uptick in traffic. We do also have a moderator code of conduct that lays out kind of the behavioral things that we expect moderators to uphold. Because as I said before, Reddit is not just about content. It's about the context of the communities in which conversations are happening. And so our goal with the moderator code of conduct is to set in place some healthy practices for moderators to facilitate healthy communities that host great conversations. I asked Jessica whether Reddit's change in policies have been effective in reducing violent misogyny on the platform. I I talked already about the policy update that we made way back in 2017 around violent content, but another one of our operative policies in catching this type of content is around hateful content. And we updated our policy around hateful content in June of 2020. And so, you know, what is misogyny, if not hate. And we found that since that policy update in 2020, our detection and actioning of hateful content against women has improved significantly. Our safety and security team did a study on this, and we found that we are actually catching and actioning more than twice as many accounts as we were 
um, before that update in 2020. And so specifically in Q1 of 2020, before the policy update against hateful content, we actioned 6,400 accounts for um, hateful misogynistic content. Whereas over a comparable 90-day period earlier this year in 2022, we were able to action more than 14,000 violating accounts. And all of that is against a backdrop of the overall level of violating content remaining constant. So we know that the increase in removals on our part is not attributable to an increase in violating content overall. We truly are catching more content and catching it faster, which is great. That's what we want to do in order to make our users feel safe and also really to unburden our moderators because we we should be the ones who are catching the majority of the really bad, hateful, violent stuff. And we should um, be leaving them um, more free time for the fun stuff about curating community and making silly rules about no dogs and cat subreddits. Unfortunately, misogyny online and gender-based abuse remains prevalent across the online ecosystem. So what more needs to be done by tech companies? Elsa believes victims' voices should be front and centre. It is like a structural problem. So what tech companies can do would basically to minimise the harm or the effects for the victims, or like the direct thing they can do. So to do that, the approach has to be victim-centred, Tech companies need to acknowledge and really take seriously how online abuse in different forms affect the person at the receiving end. So actively including these people in their plans and how they could help omit this abuse to happen. Also provide some support after the fact that abuse has happened. How that should be done is difficult to say but it's definitely it needs to be a bit more proactive i believe that tech companies can't just wait for laws to be implemented in within all different states because it takes a very long time for uh, legislation to pass and as we know that online threats and harms in different forms do evolve and develop very rapidly so that is something tech companies could do Jessica's advice to other platforms who want to do more to tackle violent misogynistic content is to look past the material and consider the wider picture. You have to look at your whole product ecosystem and implement policies from a values point of view, because it's so easy to get stuck in a spiral on you know, any given individual piece of content and you're just going to be swirling on individual pieces of content forever because every case is so different. The context matters, the particular circumstances matter. And so it's very, very hard to scale if you're focusing on content only. It's really important to get set on your values if you want to be able to scale in this fight against hateful content. If you set those values, you'll find that everything becomes much clearer and that you're encountering less gray area content because the values will be the guide. But if you're not doing that, if you just insist on focusing on individual pieces of content and adjudicating individual posts, it's just going to be like bailing out a rowboat with a thimble. A huge thank you to Elsa and Jessica for their input on this hugely important topic. At Tech Against Terrorism, we monitor violent misogynistic content and continue to work on solutions platforms can employ to counter such material and behaviour on its services. 
We consider attacks committed by incel attackers as gender-based terrorism and provide recommendations to tech companies on how to treat it as such. In addition, our threat to life policy includes threat to rape or cause serious sexual assault, and we alert law enforcement in such scenarios. If you want to learn more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. This is an OG podcast production. Executive producer is Archie McFarlane. Produced and edited by Philip Aguiu. Sound design by Oli Guiu. Music by Rowan Bishop.